Good morning. My name is Adam. If we haven't met, I'm part of the team here. And it's good to have you with us today and to look at this really wonderful uh, story from God's Word. You know, REM were one of the biggest rock bands of the 80s and the 90s. And one of their biggest hits, one of their most well-known songs, was called Everybody Hurts. Um, You've probably heard it. Uh, It was actually written by their drummer, Bill Berry, which reminds me of a joke. What was the last thing the drummer said before he was kicked out of the band? Hey, guys, I wrote a song. (laughs) It's not very nice uh, to us poor drummers, is it? Might be the reason that Bill Berry wrote the song. Might also be the reason why the lyrics of the the song are so simple. Uh, The chorus... It simply goes, well, everybody hurts, everybody cries, everybody hurts sometimes. Now, now perhaps the reason the song was so successful uh, is because these words resonate with us, don't they? They're true. Everybody does hurt. Everybody does cry. And this is true even if you are a committed Christian. This is true even if you are a devout believer in God. Being a Christian does not shield you from sadness and pain and despair. In fact, maybe uh, you are familiar with uh, this gentleman on the screen. Charles Spurgeon is his name. He is widely regarded as one of the greatest preachers of all time. His nickname was the Prince of Preachers. I don't have a nickname like that. <laughs> now, our Spurgeon ministered to, to, in London to thousands of people. He also wrote a, a number of different books, including a book for potential pastors and preachers. It's called Lectures to My Students. Uh, this is written to, to Christian ministers, ministers, and this is what Spurgeon says. He says, fits of depression come over the most of us. The strong are not always vigorous. The wise, not always ready. The brave, not always courageous. And the joyous, not always happy. Such was my experience, Spurgeon writes, when I first became a pastor in London. My success appalled me. And the thought of the career which it seemed to open up so far from elating me, cast me into the lowest depth. Who was I that I should continue to lead so great a multitude? Spurgeon, as he writes there, himself wrestled with depression. In fact, if you're looking for a helpful book on this subject of depression, I would recommend this one to you. It's simply called Spurgeon's Sorrows, written by a pastor named Zach Eswine. The the subtitle is Realistic Hope for Those Who Suffer from Depression. It looks at some of the the lessons from Charles Spurgeon's journey and his experience. And of course, Charles Spurgeon is not alone. Many believers have wrestled with uh, deep sadness and depression. And this is true, I don't know if you know this, even for those in the pages of the Bible. This is true even for the heroes of the faith, 
For example, there was a time in the life of Moses. Moses, the great leader of God's people. He wanted to give up and he asked God to kill him. Uh, There was a a time in, in Jonah's life after he led revival in Nineveh. He wanted to curl up and die. Job wished that he'd never been born. Jeremiah cursed the day of his birth. Even the great apostle Paul confessed that there was a time when he despaired of life itself, is the phrase that he uses in 2 Corinthians. The point is that to be godly does not mean to be bulletproof. To be a Christian does not make you invincible. It does not shield you from these things. You are just as susceptible as everyone else to despair and sadness and depression. And this is what we see play out today in the story of Elijah in 1 Kings chapter 19. We're in a sermon series at the moment uh, looking at the Old Testament book of 1 Kings. And we've called this series The Life and Times of Elijah. Now, who is Elijah? Well, Elijah was a prophet. That is, he was God's spokesperson. He delivered God's message to God's people. And he did this during particularly dark days. Uh, What we've seen is that the people of God went through a civil war, that there was a split in the kingdom. There was the, the kingdom of Israel in the north now, and there was the kingdom of Judah in the south. Now, Elijah mainly ministered in the north, and the king of Israel in the north at this time was a man named Ahab. Now, Ahab was not a good king, and he was not a godly king. And Ahab was married to uh, an evil woman named Jezebel. And together, the two of them led the people of God into idolatry. They brought in Baal worship, built altars to Baal, made people worship Baal. And this brought about God's judgment, as we saw in uh, chapter 17. And it led to the showdown that we looked at last week in chapter 18, the God contest at Mount Carmel. Uh, Baal, this false god on the one hand, and then Yahweh, the, the Lord, the God of the Bible, on the other hand. Now, to cut a long story short, essentially, Yahweh, the Lord, the God of the Bible, very publicly, very dramatically proves that he is the one true God. Remember, he consumes the sacrifice with fire from heaven. And he did this in front of all the people of Israel. It wasn't kind of a private event, it was a very public event. It was like doing it in the Queen Street Mall or Suncorp Stadium, and all the people of Israel saw this and they started to chant, the Lord, he is God, the Lord, he is God. An incredible moment, an amazing miracle, God undeniably proving his reality to everyone. That's what happened last week, and today we're going to look at what happens next. And let me warn you, it is not what you would expect. I mean, this was just a moment of great victory Elijah's greatest moment in his career as a prophet, you would expect that what happens next to be a victory lap. Elijah walking around Suncorp Stadium, waving to the fans, going, yes. Instead, we find him in a deep depression. We find him despairing of life itself. And the question is, why? What led him to this point and what do we learn from it? That's what we're going to be looking at today. And we're going to look at this under three headings. The hard-heartedness of Jezebel, the depression of Elijah, and then the provision of God. Let's begin, number one, with the hard-heartedness of Jezebel. 
Now, we didn't look at this last week, but at the end of chapter 18, after this great victory, Elijah immediately heads to the city of Jezreel. Now, why would he do that? Where where is Jezreel? Well, Jezreel was where the palace was. This is where Jezebel was. This is where King Ahab lived. And the question is, why would he go there? If you remember, Elijah was a wanted man. Ahab and Jezebel wanted to kill him. And now he is heading straight into the hornet's nest. Why would he do that? Well, the answer, it seems, is that Elijah thought the tide had turned. He thought a new day had dawned. He thought victory had been secured. And he thought, surely now, after what happened at Mount Carmel, Ahab and Jezebel are going to repent. They're going to change their ways. They're going to turn from worshipping Baal, and they're going to worship Yahweh, the Lord. And if they don't, surely the people of Israel will depose them. Surely there's going to be a coup, and they're going to say, we need to get rid of these king and queen and install someone who's going to worship Yahweh. And so Elijah is heading to Jezreel, thinking that revival is coming, looking forward to this new day. And sadly, he's in for a shock. When he arrives in Jezreel, he gets a message from Queen Jezebel. And it's not, welcome to town, let's have a worship service for Yahweh. It is, Elijah, you are a dead man. I am going to kill you by tomorrow. You see, Jezebel has not been changed at all by what happened at Mount Carmel. Now, she knows what happened. She wasn't there, but Ahab has filled her in on everything that happened, and she doesn't care. She's unmoved, she's unchanged, she's unconverted. And I think we learn something important here from Jezebel. Simply this, evidence will not be enough for some people. The person that says, prove it, they will very likely look at the proof and say it's not enough. Think about what happened during the life of Jesus. There were many people that saw what Jesus did, that heard what Jesus taught, and it did not move them. It did not change them. It did not convert them. The evidence was not enough. And I think this is important for us because we can fall into the trap of thinking. If we just give enough evidence, if we just get the arguments right, if we just give the right information, then surely people will believe in God, they'll trust in Jesus. But it's just not true. Evidence will not be enough. Now, it's not that we don't need evidence and information. We do. We need uh, to know the reasons for the hope that we have in Jesus. We need to know what we believe and why we believe it so that we can share that with people. But we also need to understand that evidence is not always going to be enough. Information is not always going to be sufficient. Because we need God to do a miracle inside each and every one of us. We need God to soften our hearts, to open our eyes, to see him for who he really is. And if you're a Christian, let me say, this should be encouraging to you. Because what it means is when you share your faith with someone, it's not up to you to convince them. It's not up to you to even have all the answers. You need to know what you believe and why you believe it. But at the end of the day, it's up to God to change a person's heart. And this means that you you can share your faith boldly, expectantly, prayerfully, liberally, because God is in, in the work of changing people's hearts. And he might just use what you say in that moment to do that. If you're not a Christian, 
I think this is also encouraging to you. Because it means that God is a lot closer to you than you might realise. You don't have to go through 10 steps. You don't have to go on a pilgrimage. You don't even have to have all the answers to all your questions. You can simply pray, God, if you're there, soften my heart, open my eyes, so that I can see you for who you really are. Now, sadly, I don't think Jezebel prayed this prayer. She's not changed. She's not interested in knowing the Lord. She still wants Elijah dead. And this hard-heartedness of Jezebel leads to a downward spiral for Elijah. Leads us to our second point, which is the depression of Elijah. You know, after he uh, receives this message, you're a dead man, I'm going to kill you, uh, Elijah immediately runs out into the desert. Look at verse 3. Elijah was afraid and ran for his life. Now, in the Hebrew, which is the language the Old Testament was written in, a more literal translation of this verse is Elijah saw and ran for his life. Now, what's the difference and why does it matter? Well, if Elijah was simply afraid to die, it would seem odd that in the very next verse he asked God to kill him. No, it seems there is something deeper that is driving Elijah's despair, and it's what he saw. Now, what did he see? The short answer is he saw nothing change. He saw nothing happen as a result of Mount Carmel. Nothing changed in Israel. There was no repentance. There was no revival. There was no return to the Lord. There was no coup, no protest, no demonstration, no people holding up placards, bring back Yahweh. Nothing at all has happened. And it breaks him. He's devastated. And so he, he presumably thinks there is no hope, nothing's going to happen, and he runs away. Now he goes from Jezreel in the north uh, to Beersheba in the south. He goes about as far south as you could possibly go. And when he gets to Beersheba, he leaves his servant there. It's kind of his way of saying, I, I have no more need for a staff team. You know, my, my career as a prophet is over. It's done. I'm a failure this is it. And then he goes another day further into the wilderness. He arrives at this bush, he sits under it, and he prays this in verses four and five. I have had enough, Lord. Take my life. I am no better than my ancestors. Then he lay down under the bush and fell asleep. Elijah's despair is so deep, he wants to die. He wants God, he asks God to take his life. Now, I know that in a group this size, there'll be some of us that have been impacted by suicide. Perhaps we lost a friend or a loved one to suicide. Perhaps we ourselves have had suicidal thoughts. Now, obviously, I can't say everything about this complex topic, but what I would say is this. The experience of depression, the experience of suicidal thoughts, it is not incompatible with faith in God. Elijah was a man of God, a prophet, and not just any prophet, one of the greatest prophets in the Bible. And yet he got so low, he felt so down, he wanted to die. To experience depression or suicidal thoughts, it does not put you outside God's family. 
It does not make you an inferior Christian. It puts you in the same boat as the great Elijah and Charles Spurgeon and Job and many other people of faith through the centuries. And your struggle is not unique or or shameful. In fact, in many ways, it is to be expected in a fallen world. And I know that no single sermon is going to resolve the issue. But I do want to remind you of what Scripture says. That even in your deepest, darkest moments, God hears your cries. He is near to you. He cares for you deeply. And there is hope for you in Christ. And you don't have to suffer alone or in silence. Reach out for help if you need it. Talk to a mature Christian friend. Talk to one of our staff team at church. Call one of the hotlines that are available. Don't let shame or fear make you suffer in silence. Now before I move on, allow me also to point out that even in his moment of deepest darkness, Elijah does not presume to have the right to take his own life. He doesn't actually take matters into his own hands. He doesn't take his own life. He asks God to do it, but he doesn't do it himself. There still seems to be this recognition from Elijah that ultimately God is the author of life, that the Lord gives and the Lord takes away, that that's his prerogative. And so after this kind of mountaintop experience that Elijah had last week, and often isn't this how life works? So often after moments on the mountain that we descend into the darkness, this is what happens for Elijah. He finds himself at rock bottom. He's depressed and he wants to die. And the question is, what does God think of all this? How does God respond to Elijah? And this brings us to our third and final point, which is the provision of God. See, as God begins to respond to Elijah, he does three things for him which are actually very revealing about his character and who he is. The first thing that God does for Elijah is he feeds him. You know, Elijah is asleep under this bush and an angel comes along and wakes him up. Now, I'm sure an angel waking you up is probably very soothing. You know, it's not like the the poke in the ribs that you might get from one of your small children or something. Not that I'm speaking from experience. (laughs) Now, what does this angel do? Does he deliver a message? Does he rebuke Elijah? What are you doing sleeping? You should be praying. You should be reading your Bible. Does he counsel Elijah? Elijah, do you want to talk about this? He doesn't do any of that. He bakes Elijah some bread. Gives him some water. No lectures, no counseling, no support groups, no therapy, no calls to repentance. He makes him a meal and he lets him go back to sleep. Now, what does this show us? I think it shows us as Christians, we can sometimes try to be more spiritual than God. Oftentimes, if a Christian is depressed or despondent, we'll automatically assume that it must be a spiritual problem. And so we automatically diagnose a spiritual remedy. So we'll say to someone, well, you need to pray more. You need to read your Bible more. You you know, have you rebuked the devil? Have you given thanks to God? Are these things wrong? 
No, of course not. They're good things. They're things that we should be doing. But they're not the whole story. They don't give us the whole picture. We are not purely spiritual beings. God made us as physical beings. And he placed us in a physical world. And what that means is sometimes you don't need a Bible study or a sermon. Please keep coming to church though, because you do need sermons. You do need God's word. But sometimes, in the depths of despair, what you need is to go for a walk or to have something to eat or to have a nice long nap. (laughs) Sounds nice, doesn't it? This is where God starts with Elijah, gives him something to eat and lets him sleep. But this is not all that God does for Elijah. Secondly, what we see there is that God listens to him. You know, the angel actually provides another meal for Elijah. Uh, It's to strengthen him for the journey ahead. Elijah is going to be traveling from Beersheba to Horeb, uh, another 400 kilometers south to Horeb, the mountain of God. Now, why is Elijah going to Horeb? You know, why is he going there? Well, another name for Horeb is Mount Sinai. And Sinai, of course, is a very significant place in the Bible. It's where uh, God gave his people the Ten Commandments. It's where God appeared to Moses. Very important place. And the question is, as Elijah travels to, to Horeb, as he kind of retraces Moses' steps, will Elijah, like Moses, see God? Will he have an encounter with God that will change his situation and his perspective? Well, we're given an answer immediately in verse 9. Look at what we read there. After Elijah arrives at Horeb, there he went into a cave and spent the night. And the word of the Lord came to him, what are you doing here, Elijah? And so God speaks to Elijah. He asks him a question. What are you doing here, Elijah? Now, it's possible to interpret this question in a few different ways. I mean, I use this question in a few different ways with my kids. Uh, For example, I might walk into a room and say, what are you doing here? And I mean, you shouldn't be here. It's a rebuke. But equally, I might walk into a room and I might say, what are you doing here? What's happening in here? What are you actually doing? It's a, a question, a request for information. Now, I don't think that this is how God is using the question with Elijah. I don't think he's rebuking him, saying, what are you doing here at Mount Horeb? Nor do I think he's asking, you know, why are you actually here at Mount Horeb, Elijah? No, I think that this question from God is actually an invitation to Elijah. It's an invitation for him to share his burdens, to pour out his heart. It's like the question that a psychologist will ask you, how did that make you feel? It's an invitation for you to share, to unburden yourself. And the reason I think it is, is because that's exactly what Elijah goes on to do in verse 10. I won't read it, but, but he basically unburdens himself. He spills his guts. He's very honest with God, and he's very uh, honest about the Israelites. He says, God, I've been trying to do the right thing by you. I've been trying to call the people back to you, but no one has listened to me. No one has returned to you. They're as bad as they've ever been, and I'm the last man standing. Now, some scholars suggest that Elijah here is being a little bit melodramatic, you know, he's going a little bit over the top. And, and I mean, strictly speaking, he's not the only one left. Remember Obadiah from last week? He hid 100 prophets in caves in the wilderness. Elijah's not the last one left. 
And so maybe he is being a little bit melodramatic, maybe he has lost a bit of perspective, but we tend to do that in moments of pain, don't we? But after all, I think simply Elijah is being honest with God because God has invited him to be honest. And again, here we see the tenderness of God. God's not afraid of our feeling. God is not indifferent to our pain. He wants to hear the cries of his people. Psalm 34 says this, The eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are attentive to their cry. It's open to your cry. The righteous cry out, and the Lord hears them. He delivers them from all their troubles. Peter says it very sim- simply to Christians in 1 Peter chapter 5. He says, cast all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. God listens to Elijah. God listens to you. And, and what this means for us is that we too can listen to one another. This is how we can care for one another, by listening. Sometimes we just need to talk. Sometimes we just need to express ourselves. Sometimes we just need somebody to listen to us. And we can be that listening ear for our brothers and sisters in Christ. We should be that listening ear. So this is what God does for his depressed prophet. First, he feeds him. Second, he listens to him. But again, that's not the whole story. Because thirdly, in the last part of the passage, we see God speaks to him. Look at verse 11. God says to Elijah, Go out and stand on the mountain in the presence of the Lord, for the Lord is about to pass by. Now put yourself in Elijah's shoes. If you were told the Lord is about to pass by, how would you expect that to happen? What's going through your mind? How do you think that's going to play out? Now remember where Elijah was. He's on Horeb, Mount Sinai. When God appeared to his people earlier in Exodus on Mount Sinai, he did it with thunder and lightning and fire. I think Elijah was probably expecting some fireworks. And initially, this is what happened. We're told in verse 11, a powerful wind tears through the mountain, an earthquake shakes the mountain, then fire appears on the mountain. It's all very spectacular, it's all very dramatic, but each time we read this, the Lord was not in the wind. The Lord was not in the earthquake. The Lord was not in the fire. Instead, then we read in verse 12, after the fire came a gentle whisper. When Elijah heard it, he pulled his cloak over his face and went out and stood at the mouth of the cave. Now what's going on here? What's the point? The point, it seems, is that God is in control of all these things. God is in control of the natural world, the earthquake, the wind, the fire. But God is not in them. You won't find God in them. God controls them, but you won't find him there. Which begs the question, how do you find God? Where do you come to know God? And the answer is the whisper, the voice of God, the word of God. Now, what is this whisper? Should you go uh, climb Mount Coulomb after the service today and wait there for a mystical whisper from God? I don't think so. Notice Elijah didn't go looking for this voice 
He wasn't searching for it. God gave it to him. God revealed it to him. God spoke it to him. And friends, God has done the same thing for you and for me. God has spoken to us by his son and in his word. God has given us a clear message in Jesus and in his word. And it's up to us to listen and to respond. You see, this I think is the point of this section, that God generally speaks to us. God usually reveals himself to us, not through the spectacular and the dramatic, not through Hollywood-style, you know, special effects, but God reveals himself to us through his word, in his son, in the message about his son, which we call the gospel, the good news of Jesus. Now, this might seem far less powerful to us, maybe a little bit like a whisper compared to an earthquake, but it's actually the most powerful force that is at work in the world today. You know, when the Bible describes the power of God, it talks about the gospel. Romans 1.16, Paul writes, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, because it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes. If you want to know God, you come to Jesus. Hear the word about Jesus. Trust in Jesus. And there's more in this passage that we could look at, but I want to land here with this message about Jesus, because this is where we find God. Whether life is good and we're happy, or whether, like Elijah, life is hard and we're sad. What we need is the gentle voice of God to us through his son, Jesus. In fact, it was this message that gave strength to Charles Spurgeon in his struggle with depression. Here's what he said uh, one day to his congregation in a sermon. He said, I find myself frequently depressed, perhaps more so than any other person here. I find no better cure for that depression than to trust in the Lord with all my heart and seek to realize afresh the power of the peace-speaking blood of Jesus and his infinite love in dying upon the cross to put away all my transgressions. What brought Spurgeon peace was the peace-speaking blood of Jesus, the infinite love of God revealed to us in Jesus. Because what you can know is that no matter how dark life gets, if God has sent his only son to die in your place on the cross for your sin, to give you hope and a future beyond the grave, and even in the darkest moments of life, you can have hope. You can look to that light beyond the darkness and keep going. Keep trusting Jesus to the very end. And this is part of the reason why I think Jesus gave us Lord's Supper. Because what we do when we come to Lord's Supper is we have very tangible reminders and signs of what Christ has done for us. The bread, the, 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 the cracker, represents the body of the Lord Jesus given for us. The, the, the juice represents the spilled blood of Jesus. That is the lengths to which God has gone for you and for me. 
And so when we come to Lord's Supper, as we will do in just a moment, we come with glad and grateful hearts for Jesus. We come not because we're worthy, not because we've earned it, but because Christ has made us worthy, because Christ invites us to come. And yet we also come not just with glad and thankful hearts, we also come with sober and realistic minds. The Apostle Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 11 that when we come to the table, we are to examine ourselves. We're to ask ourselves, am I truly trusting Jesus? Am I seeking to live in obedience to Jesus? That's what the table also confronts us with, that question. And so what I'm going to do before we come together to eat in just a moment, I'm now going to lead us in prayer. But I'm going to leave some space before I pray for you to pray for you to to do some business with God, to repent where you need to repent, to give thanks to God for what Jesus has done, and then we'll come and we'll eat and we'll drink together. So let's pray before we do that. Gracious Lord, we are not worthy to eat the crumbs from under your table, but your love compels us to draw near. We come with repentance and faith to express our need for all the benefits of your son's death for us. Renew us in your service and help us to love one another as members of the body of our Lord Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.